Fantasy is a natural human activity. It does not destroy or even insult reason. For creative fantasy is founded on a recognition effect, but not a slavery to it. From an essay on fairy stories by J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Nicholas Kotar, author of fantasy inspired by Slavic fairy tales and seeker after the good, the true, and the beautiful. You're listening to Fantasy for Our Time. In this podcast, I discuss classic and new fantasy media, have long and involved conversations with authors and storytellers, and explore how stories can help us all live a better, more fulfilling life. Hello, dear friends. Welcome once again to the comfy basement library where ideas flow freely and sometimes libations do as well. Not today, though. It's a little too early for libations to flow this afternoon, but perhaps soon. This is episode two in Fantasy for Our Time, and it's a difficult episode for me to record. I was, I was thinking about how best to approach this subject. I don't want this podcast to get embroiled in political questions, to go off-brand, to not really focus on the thing that I know all of you want to hear about, which is how much we all love stories. But all of us, because of the nature of globalism, because of the nature of social media, because of the nature of our always-on society, every single one of us has been just absolutely enveloped and overwhelmed by the constant stream of information from the war in Ukraine. And this is obviously an important issue for me because, as you probably know already, I write epic fantasy inspired by Russian fairy tales. And although I'm not, I don't limit myself in my storytelling to specifically Russian fairy tales, and really a lot of the tales that I tell come from an almost mythical place called Kiev and Rus, which geographically is now found in what is now Ukraine. So this is an important issue for me as well, not merely because I'm a storyteller and because I tell stories that come from this place that is now embroiled in war, but because I myself have Russian roots, as well as Belarusian roots, as well as Persian roots, as well as Mongolian roots, as well as a whole bunch of other roots. So it doesn't really matter all that much, except that I've always had a sense of my own identity as at least partially being Russian. People have already been writing to me and demanding that I come come up with this public statement or that public statement or something, something or something or other. And even without their encouragement, I don't know that it's possible for me to talk about stories, specifically stories that have their roots in Russia, without at least somewhat talking about what's going on in the world right now. But my intention, as it has always been with these videos and, and these podcasts, is not to stoke any sort of political ideology. It's not to get people upset. It's really to try to step back and to look at things from a storytelling perspective. Because stories, as I argue in my series about stories that unite during dark times, which you can get by signing up for it on my, uh, on my website, I argue that stories, or at least the good ones, tend to unite us, not separate us. And it is the great tragedy in a, lot of, uh, in a lot of ways of our time that the stories that predominate in the media and sometimes around our dinner tables are stories that are not told in any way, shape, or form to unite us. And actually, this perhaps is not accidental. 
and maybe, although it's, it's not accidental, but it's also not, I think, uh, a a product of some cabal somewhere controlling our thoughts or trying to make us think in a certain way or any sort of conspiracy theory du jour stick it in right here i recently read something that really fascinated me i've been reading a collection of uh, essays by the wonderful wendell berry called the world ending fire this uh, collection has been uh, curated by the equally wonderful paul king's north and in it is a wonderful essay called Writer in Region, where Wendell Berry grapples with his own personal reaction to the novel Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. And initially I thought, okay, this is going to be one of those regionalism episodes of that particular podcast, I'm going to skip it. But I forced myself to, to read this essay because everything that, uh, that Wendell Berry writes is unexpectedly and uh, surprisingly brilliant, especially when you least expect it, right? So... He has this wonderful quote in there that really struck me and made me think. He says the following. He says, I am supposing that Huckleberry Finn fails fails in failing to imagine a responsible adult community life. And I am supposing further that this is the failure of Mark Twain's life and of our life so far as a society. Community life, as I suggested earlier, he continues, is tragic. And it is so because it involves unremittingly the need to survive mortality, partiality, and evil. Because Huck Finn and Mark Twain so clung to boyhood and to the boy's vision of free bachelorhood, neither could enter community life as I am attempting to understand it. A boy can experience grief and horror, but he cannot experience that fulfillment and catharsis of grief, fear, and pity that we call tragedy and still remain a boy. This really struck me as I was reading it because I'm looking at the reactions of people around me and I'm very, I'm going to be honest here, at my own reaction to everything that's happening. And I'm noticing that I'm being dragged, kicking and screaming back and forth from one ideological position to another, depending on the loudness of the opinion that I heard in the last 10, 15 minutes. And also based on the hor- on the level of the horror as expressed in the latest photo that the the media wants me to see and the level of outrage that comes from the latest possibly uh, corroborated but possibly not story from the front lines directly and i was talking to a fellow writer who mentioned that uh, her son was talking to someone in church of all places uh, about his desire to uh, enter into the military, but now that that desire is tempered by the fact that he's afraid that over the next year or two there might be a mass mobilization of of the mil of the American military to go help fight uh, fight Russia and Ukraine, and he wouldn't want to enter the military if that were the case, and he would wait. And which is, you know, as far as I'm concerned, a perfectly uh, legitimate way of looking at things, and a very logical and very wise way for a young man to to look at current events. And the person he was talking to, rather than engage the young man in conversation immediately started to um, bloviate loudly on on the evils of the new Hitler, Vladimir Putin, and would not let the young man go until the young man were to publicly signal his virtue by declaring the man Putin to be uh, the latest incarnation of the great Satan. Now, I'm not saying this to espouse a particular position on uh, Putin as leader or Putin as human being. 
he is a human being. He has his own immortal soul, as far as I'm concerned. And his actions, although they affect many millions, he is ultimately responsible for them. What is more interesting to me here is the inability to deal with tragedy. And it's happening everywhere. People are really affected by this. They are affected by this to the same emotional tenor as they have been affected by everything having to do with COVID. And they are also affected by it in the same emotional tenor as they have been affected by everything to do with the culture war. Are you seeing some commonalities here? I hope you are, because I think this is something that is significant. And it is very much connected with our storytelling sense. And I'll get to that in a second. But this idea that Barry presents, that this is a lack of communal catharsis, is very correct. He wrote this way before the internet. He wrote this before smartphones. And so he was already noticing that a kind of Peter Pan syndrome, specifically in America, that American people, American society is unable to deal with the tragedy of the world for this or that reason, because they are unable to exit the idealized vision of boyhood. They hide from tragedy instead of allowing for it to transform them through, the, through a communal experience of catharsis. And he goes on to explain what this communal, communal uh, experience of catharsis would be. He cannot experience tragedy in solitude or as a stranger, for tragedy is experienceable only in the context of a beloved community. The fulfillment in catharsis that Aristotle described as a, the communal result of tragic drama is an artificial enactment of the way a mature community survives tragedy in fact. So this is partially having to do with the fact that we no longer have community storytelling, so we can't, as a community, feel the catharsis of tragedy on stage or in the public telling of a story. Our storytelling has become an isolated experience. But perhaps that would have been okay if it was only limited to the isolated experience of catharsis through the reading of books, because you could still share that experience in book clubs or with your or with your with your family. After you've read something particularly uh, moving, you could always share that at the or at the dinner table or with your friends. This is something people do all the time. But when it comes to the internet, when it comes to smartphones, it's much more difficult to have a an isolated experience of catharsis that then, in fact, it's impossible that then uh, becomes a communal one. And so this reality of isolation actually becomes expressed in a very interesting and very dangerous way. Because we feel, we, I say not you, I say we, feel this danger of isolation that is confronted by a specter of tragedy that is horrific. Because this war is horrible, as all war is, and as all total war of the 20th and 21st century is by necessity. Since this reality of isolation is not something that we can get out of through community catharsis, at least not yet. We express it by finding, by our extreme need for a scapegoat, for a scapegoating mechanism. This, this is expressed as extreme anger that is extremely emotional, that has at its heart a very good intention. But it cannot be cathartic because the object of the ire cannot be sacrificed. There cannot be an atonement as there was, let's say, in the Old Testament, right? There is no scapegoat, literally, that you can kill for the sake of the sins of the fathers or something like that, right? So this then leads to a further issue, a further very serious internal problem that all of us deal with on a regular basis. And that is the 
inability to deal with a reality in which two things can be simultaneously true and yet opposites. I found this wonderful, wonderful quote from the introduction to a translation of the Psalter of all, of all books by the wonderful poet Donald Sheehan. In his introduction, he talks about how the Psalms are very often an expression of something he calls antimony. Now, antimony, this term, seems first to have been used in classical Rome, classical Roman law, to describe the circumstance of every jury trial. One side completely prosecutes, while the other side completely defends. According to all legal assumption, the truth can arise only through such jarring antinomical interaction. This is something that I've been hearing uh, Cal Newport talk about a lot on his podcast. Uh, he's talking about it from a more philosophical perspective, because Kant later on uses the idea of antimony to have a thesis and antithesis uh, clashing together to, pre to create a synthesis. And that synthesis will necessarily be more true than either the thesis or the antithesis. And this is practically true for those people who are trying to find the truth about some specific thing. The best way you can get at the truth of something is by trying to very carefully examine one side of the issue and then very carefully examine the best examples of the other side of the issue. And in the clash of those ideas, to come through it in a moment of kind of catharsis and decide for yourself that there must be a truth higher than either one extreme or the other. But we have not been trained to deal with antinomic realities. We don't know what to do with them. And so most of the time we choose one or the other. And not only that, but we treat those who espouse the opposite view, the other side of the antinomy, as a great enemy. And that desire to other the other side is bolstered by our very strong sense of moral righteousness. A very dangerous, strong sense of moral righteousness because it is it is performed in isolation. It is not performed in community. It cannot be tempered by coming into contact with the faces of those people that we actually disagree with. Which is why so much so much of this happens over the internet, over the impersonal medium of text-based interactions in comment sections on Twitter or YouTube. This is only half an existence. This is only half a life. And it certainly does not help, and it will not help us deal with the very hard reality of what is going on in Ukraine. Because the hard reality is that on some level, there is a way of seeing what's happening in a storytelling perspective. But our, this storytelling perspective will not help any of us actually fix the war. Because the war will play itself out the way it will play itself out. This, these are world powers interacting with each other on a scale that we cannot affect. And in our constantly try, striving to come up with the truth of the matter and getting to the heart of it, it's like we are a wave of water that is constantly beating against the, a cliff and being dissipated into nothing. And our emotional energy goes nowhere and we become increasingly unhappy and increasingly miserable. But there is a way, as I suggested in episode one of this podcast, of dealing with this hard reality. And it has to do with the consolation, the escape of the prisoner that Tolkien talks about in his wonderful essay on fairy stories. And in particular, I want to talk about how this particular situation is a wonderful example of how the heroic quest, the hero's journey that we hear so much about, can be perverted and misused. And how our proper experience of it through a storytelling medium 
can do something very beautiful for us, perhaps not for the world. Except insofar as we, by being more wholehearted individuals, can then affect the world around us in a positive manner. So what I'm talking about here, what I really wanted to explore, explore here is something that is difficult for me to say because I'm going to be critical of my own people. But as I look at this and as I step back and as I try try to make sense of what is happening to Russia and all the reasons and all the motivations and all the all the possible all the possible aspects of reality that could have contributed to this decision being made. I cannot help but see this move on Russia's part as an expression of the hero's journey gone wrong. Now, here's what I mean by that. The hero's journey is something that is intrinsic to most storytelling structures, to most fairy tale storytelling structures. We see it in most of the really great fantasy stories that we read. I won't go into the details of what it is. You can find it for yourself. I don't necessarily hear when I'm talking about the hero's journey, I'm not necessarily talking about Joseph Campbell's hero with a thousand faces, that that is one part of it. But what I'm really talking about here is the underlying structure of most, or one of the underlying structures of many, I should say, fairy tales and fantasy novels that we can see, uh, both in, in the ancient forms of the stories and in the modern forms in fantasy novels. In this paradigm, it is necessary for the hero, in order to save his community, it is necessary for him to leave the community and to encounter danger in isolation, away from the comforts of his own community and his family. And this, in this isolation, he has to encounter the darkness both outside in the world and within himself. He can only do this as a kind of going out of himself in extreme fashion. In encountering the danger out there and inside himself, he has to come to a, to a point or a moment where he is utterly defeated by both the danger or darkness inside himself and the danger and darkness outside of himself. And only by going through that utter and complete failure can he then find the strength, usually mediated by an, by an unexpected grace coming from somewhere outside of himself, can he then find the means to destroy the dragon both inside and outside? Now, some people have an issue with the hero's journey paradigm. Partially because it's such a masculine trope. Partially because those there is a movement among some people to see this way of telling stories as the only way of living. And so what they do as a matter of life, not a matter of story, is they treat every day as a hero's journey. But the problem with that is that if you're not careful and if you're not prepared to be a hero in your going out into the isolation and facing the dragon, you might, if you're not careful, swing your sword in the wrong direction and kill some innocents in the process. This is a point that is made rather strongly by Gail Carriger in her book, The Heroine's Journey, where she repeatedly um, lets the reader know that her preference is for a different paradigm, the heroine's journey, which is not about uh, going out into isolation and slaying dragons and accidentally slaying innocents along the way, but it is for a different uh, journey, the heroine's journey, which I will talk about in a second. The hero's journey, untempered by the need 
and the necessity the and the actual doing of the internal part the overcoming of internal dragons can cause heroes that are a menace to themselves and to others that certainly seems to me to be happening on a global scale with russia russia seems to be russia seems to be seeing its mission in the world as a mission of a hero going out into the darkness and slaying the unicorn of fascism nazism neo-nazism insert baddie of the day here but they are swinging their sword rather randomly and it seems like in the process they're being blinded by by the dragons on the outside and the dragons on the inside and in the swinging of their great sword they are harming a great number of innocents and this is a terrible terrible thing of course we cannot do anything about this which is what the point that i made before so what can we do and how can the hero's journey actually help us deal with this reality well the wonderful thing about stories is that they let you vicariously experience the reality that you see outside in a safe space so if reading a story will still not give you the communal catharsis that you receive from tragedy you can still have an internal catharsis that can be strong enough that will allow you to then become perhaps a source for that catharsis for your community in the future in other words heal the division within yourself by the medium of story first and by healing that division within yourself by becoming a calm center that has passed through that dangerous catharsis other people will be naturally attracted to you i wanted to specifically talk about the last unicorn by peter s beagle this book is a wonderful wonderful book not least because it simultaneously plays to the tropes of the hero's journey makes fun of them subverts them but ultimately also embraces them and it also embraces the tropes of the heroine's journey and in a very beautiful way combines both of them in an experience of absolute harmony and beauty that is quite unusual and unexpected in uh, in fantasy literature so i wanted to set the scene here the last unicorn is a story about a unicorn that suddenly has this unexpected uh, feeling of extreme need to leave her space and the this need to leave her space which is unusual for unicorn unicorns aren't travelers they usually inhabit a specific place and they beautify it by their presence they're not traveling uh magical creatures but she hears that she may be the last unicorn in existence on earth and this causes her internal uh, dissatisfaction she needs to go out and find out where are the other unicorns what has happened to them have they died am i really the last unicorn in the process of this she encounters a whole series of uh, curious characters um, most of whom are quite comically um, wonderful but also have a depth of drama and tragedy to them that makes this book a really an unusual and, and wonderful example of of a book that is able to juggle different genres in, in a beautiful way but she, in particular, comes into contact with a bumbling magician who accidentally uh, transforms her into a human woman. Now, this is a terrible thing, obviously, for a unicorn, because a unicorn is immortal, and a human woman is not. So as soon as she becomes the human woman, her immortality is now uh, 
uh, in danger of fading away. And her identity is as well. She begins to forget who she is. But in the process of her becoming human, she encounters a rather lazy and ne'er-do-well prince named Prince Lear, who is the son of a terrible king, King Haggard, who is in, in a lot of ways the uh, the archetypal villain. And merely her presence, her beauty, and her the the inklings and the shining through of her unicorn self um, speak to his heart in ways and, and awaken him in a way that he has never experienced before. So he has this vivid experience of encountering beauty incarnate that changes him and he begins to do to rather comic effect initially various feats of valor he, he goes out and starts to slay dragons literally this is a fairy tale and he comes back with with uh, in rather grisly fashion all kinds of uh, heads of monsters on his horse and presents them <laughs> to the lovely lady amalthea uh, the unicorn um and she of course does not appreciate the uh, the valor and he continues to do it because there's nothing else he can do but in the process of this uh of of being a hero, um, even though the author kind of makes fun of the process throughout the, the story, he actually does become, whether he likes it or not, a true hero, a hero, a proper hero that accords to all of the tropes of the hero's journey, which allows him then, in the end, to perform an, an act of self-sacrifice that leads to his own death. It's a beautiful scene. Um, it's classic, classic fantasy, classic hero's journey. And in return, she, after being transformed back into, into you know, unicorn form, uh, gives him his life back. It's, it's a gift that she can give because she is uh, this immortal force. After she gives him his life back, he becomes king of the land. And he is now faced with the reality of no longer having this object of his affections because she's now a unicorn. And she must return to where she's from. And you can't follow her because she's a unicorn. And he's not a virgin, right? He's not hes not a pure young woman, not the kind of traditional uh, person to attract a unicorn to his presence, right? So what is he going to do with this reality? And that's what I wanted to... Uh, this is the section I wanted to read to you right now. King Lear said, She is gone. Find my horse and saddle him. Find my horse. His voice was harsh and hungry, and the men-at-arms scrambled to obey their new lord. But Schmendrick, that's the bumbling magician, standing behind him said quietly, Your majesty, it may not be. You must not follow her. The king turned and he looked like Haggard. That's his father. Magician, she is mine. He paused and then went on in a gentler tone close to pleading. She has twice raised me up from death. And what will I be without her but dead for a third time? He took Schmendrick by the wrists with a grip strong enough to powder bones. But the magician did not move. Lear said, I am not King Haggard. I have no wish to capture her, but only to spend my life following after her, miles, leagues, even years behind, never seeing her perhaps, but content. It is my right. A hero is entitled to his happy ending when it comes at last. But Schmendrick answered, This is not the end, either for you or for her. You are the king of a wasted land, where there has never been any king but fear. Your true task has just begun, and you may not know in your life if you have succeeded in it, but only if you fail. As for her, she is a story with no ending, happy or sad. She can never belong to anything mortal enough to want her. Most strangely then, he put his arms around the young king and held him so for a time. Yet be content, my lord, he said in a low voice. No man has ever had more of her grace than you, and no one will ever be blessed by her remembrance. You have loved her and served her. Be content and be king. But that is not what I want, Lear cried. The magician answered not a word, but only looked at him. Blue eyes stared back into green, a face grown lean and lordly into one neither handsome nor so bold. 
The king began to squint and blink as though he were gazing at the sun, and it was not long before he lowered his eyes and muttered, So be it. I will stay and rule alone over a wretched people in a land I hate, but I will have no more joy of my rule than poor Haggard ever had. This scene it really strikes me, and when I read it, I was very moved by it, because it shows you the limitation of the traditional hero's journey and how at at, one, at some point there needs to be a letting go of what it means to be a hero. And that letting go comes when you return back from your journey to your community. And that's what I want to leave, that's the thought I want to leave with all of you today. What happens to the hero at the end of the hero's journey is this. He has passed through hell and heaven and he has become transformed by his heroic journey. But it is not enough for him to go on traipsing around the world, like Huck Finn, the point made by Wendell Berry. He has to come home, and he has to then become the agent of change. He has to then become the agent of communal catharsis. And by the way, each one of us can become this for our own communities. So instead of spending every waking hour looking at the never-ending series of doom posts from the media when it comes to this war. I wish for all of us to be able to have the strength and the fortitude to understand that nothing that we can do on the internet is going to change what ultimately happens in the war. The best thing that we can do, perhaps this is the only thing that we can do, is to find internal healing and become the agents of change for our own community, become the heroes that we read about. And if we feel like we can't do that yet, if we feel like we're not there yet, at the, at the very least what we can do is find the kinds of books that give us great examples of how to become this thing. So today's recommendation is to go and read The Last Unicorn by Peter S. Beagle and to experience a hero's journey that is softened by the heroine's journey and through that process to then become a transformed hero who can later on, as needed, become an agent of communal catharsis. If every single one of us tries to do that, even for our own families, imagine the good that we can do. Okay, lovely people, that's the end of what will be the podcast. If anybody is still here, if you have any comments, questions, hi Vesper. That's so interesting. That's a perspective hero vis-a-vis -vis Russia could misapply their identity or mission and embark on the wrong journey. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't have the right mentor, if you haven't been trained properly, if you have if you go off on a crazy, crazy quest that isn't the right quest, because remember the hero has to resist the call to adventure initially. It has to be the right call to adventure because, yeah, if he goes on the wrong call to adventure, if he goes on the wrong adventure, that story is going to be a bad one. Interesting idea, by the way, for us writers. Uh, this this whole thing about communal catharsis and Aristotle, um, as expressed by Wendell Berry, really struck me this week. and I really thought how well that fits with the stuff that I've been talking about over the last few years about stories making you, a, you know, sort of the hero of your own life and allowing stories to mediate um, unity within your immediate rooted reality, you know, starting with yourself, with your own heart, and then moving outward into, into your community. And it fit really well.
So I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But um, hopefully this won't be something that people get too upset about. <laughs> I'm expecting a host of angry emails from Ukrainians saying that I'm an evil person. Probably from Russian ones too. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to delve more deeply into this topic, check out my audio series on stories that unite in dark times, available exclusively at nicholaskotar.com forward slash stories that unite. And if you're hankering for more fantasy stories, check out my own Raven Sun epic fantasy series inspired by Russian fairy tales, available now in audio, paperback, and ebook formats. This show is produced by the wonderful Derek Cummins, and the beautiful title music is Lighthouse in the Rain, originally composed by Velislava Franta. You can find her work on SoundCloud.